Well, good morning, Oak Grove. It is an honor and a privilege to get to open the word with you today. And I know Brandon's already recognized the veterans, but if you served our country or you're married to someone who served our country, I just want to thank you for, for the freedoms that y'all gave up so that we can have enjoy the freedom of being an American. Um, you know, we already had you stand up, but if you'll do this for me, if you served in the military, raise your hand. Now, keep your hands up. I want to say thank you. I didn't. I didn't. Um, but if you're related to someone, grandpa, father, grandma, uh, anybody, son, raise your hand if you're related to somebody in the military. I want you to look and see at our church. God has, you can put your hands down. Thank you so much. But God has, has used you guys and the extended family by supporting them to secure freedom. And, you know, I, I talk often about talking to missionaries who are in different places in the world, who are in very scary places in the world. And one thing I want you to understand about that is when, when America is strong, now we all, we're always sharing the gospel and we're always sending people, don't get me wrong. But when America's strong, what that allows is more freedom and more opportunity in our gospel sharing endeavors. So we as the church even should appreciate what the Lord's done in the, the strength that he's given to our great country. So let, I want to pray with you guys and then let's dive right in. God, thank you so much for allowing us to live in a free country. Thank you for the men and women who have made that sacrifice to allow us to, to, to do this. Lord, thank you for a place where we get to worship you freely. God, and we pray for the safety of our people who are currently serving. Lord, but I pray now you would direct our hearts to the text and you would open our eyes and you would reveal truth to us. If there's sin, let us confess it. If, if it's a lack of faith, Lord, let us believe it. Lord, we need you desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> my beautiful wife is the one who, who makes the slides for us on Saturday night. And so she's got to skim through my, my message. And um, she, she looked at the, the intro as she was, you know, making the stuff. And she's like, are you kidding me? On Veterans Day, you've got an illustration about Winston Churchill. I was like, hey, just hang with me. The Americans are the good guys in the end. But I, I geek out on um, Winston Churchill. I think he's just a really interesting figure. I was reading one of his biographies. And um, if you don't know, Winston Churchill was the prime minister of Britain during World War II. And the biographer, he does a really fantastic job of, it's very little bit, it's very little of the biographer writing other than just setting the stage. And then he uses the, the diaries and the speeches and the letters of Churchill to, to tell the story of Churchill. It's, it's, it's a pretty interesting. So Churchill in his diaries, he explains from his perspective what was going on during the war. The daily casualties that the, the people of Britain experienced, um, how at night the Germans were bombing just 
indiscriminately uh, military and civilians. Churchill writes about the effects of the blitzkrieg and, and the, the mornings, the, the, the practice in the mornings was that they would wake up and go dig bodies out of rubble from the bombing from the night before, men, women, and children. And few people write like he does and how he explains the heart-wrenching effect of what he saw. So at this time in the war, Brit the British were in retreat. The Germans had them easily outgunned. They had them outmanned. The only aid they were receiving from the Americans were food. was food. And by this time, Churchill, in, in, his, in a letter to someone, he reflects on his feeling towards the Americans very candidly. And he says, at best, the Americans had just entered the war half-heartedly. But everything changed on, many of you will recognize this date, December 7th, 1941. America was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Churchill, after grieving for the lives that were lost, he writes this, America is now in the war. We and the rest of the world are saved. We can suffer all things because America's in the war. That night, the sound of bombs were going off all around Churchill. And he writes this in his diary. With, with the sounds of bombs echoing in the background. That night, I slept the sleep of the saved. Churchill said he didn't know how much more suffering the British would have to endure for how many more years. But he knew, he said, Hitler and the Nazis were going to face the judgment of the American power. In the same way that Churchill knew he could endure all things that were coming because he knew ultimately how the war was going to end because America had entered into the war. Our passage this morning is telling us that we can endure all things because we're saved. We know how it ends. We can endure all suffering because we know we have been preserved by Jesus Christ and we're going to be presented by him to the Father in glory. So here's what's true if you're a note taker. We've been preserved by the blood of Christ to be, to be presented to the Father in glory. We've been preserved by the blood of Christ to be presented to the Father in glory. And we'll look at that in our text. So what do we do with this? It sounds easy, but it's real hard. We endure. We endure all suffering and honor God in our suffering because we know that Jesus will present us to the Father. So let's look at our text in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, if you're an underliner, underline this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So let's look at verse, we're going to look first at verse 18 and 18 through 20. Jesus suffered for the unrighteous. I love this text because it is the gospel. I love to preach the gospel. And here's the gospel in one sentence in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's beautiful. The text shows us Jesus' motivation for his suffering. Do you see it? So that he might bring us to God. You might ask yourself, why did, why did Jesus have to suffer for our sins? It's because we're separated from God. Sin has separated us from God. We were separated from God since Genesis. You remember the story in Genesis 3, you know, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates this awesome world. He puts the animals in it. He's, he, he does all the, he makes the stars. He makes the heavens. He, he does all the things. Then the pinnacle of creation is, is man and woman. And he puts us in the garden, Adam and Eve, and he tells them to do a couple of things. The first commands were to be fruitful and to be, multiply and to take dominion over the creation. But... There's a forbidden fruit on these trees, and you shall not take of it. Well, pretty much, real quick, we decided we wanted to be our own gods. We wanted to reject the authority of God. So, they ate. And Adam, because he sinned, Adam brought death into the world. He brought sin into the world. Romans 5 tells us Adam is our federal head. He, it talks about us, him um, as us underneath Adam. He's our representative. And because of Adam's sin, we are all born into sin and therefore condemned by that sin. And you're like, well, that's not fair. It is what it is. But not just that, we're not just condemned because of what Adam did, right? We know that each and every one of us individually has sinned. So we've corporately sinned against God, but each as an individual has sinned against God as well. And that is not just me saying it, Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Does it say some have sinned? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you might be thinking like, I know my sin disappoints God, but why, why did Jesus have to die for sin? And ultimately the answer is because God is just. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that death is talking about an eternal death. We know it's been appointed once for man to die. We know when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought death into the world. But this death that this text right here is talking about is the death of being separated from God for eternity in hell. But that's not where that text leaves, is it? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus died to bring us life. We see our sin as a little thing, but our sin 
is rejection of God. God is eternal. And our sin is against an eternal God. And our sin will not be forgotten by an eternal God. And if God did not make us in his justice pay for sin, God wouldn't be just. It would not be a just God. So here's the problem with sin. Man could never pay his sin debt. We're told in the Bible that the cost for sin is blood. Hebrews 9, 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And you're like, well, what about the Old Testament stuff? The Old Testament sacrificial system. The Old Testament, Hebrews tells us, it was never meant to do away with sin. It was like a, it was like a placeholder. The Old Testament sacrificial system, it was just a covering. It never said that sins were removed. It was a placeholder until the perfect time that Jesus Christ came to earth and died once for all sins. Hebrews tells us that the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. God allowed that, that moment in history to be a covering have you ever wondered why Jesus has the ability to pay for sin? Simply, it's because Jesus is God. The text tells us that animals couldn't pay our debt. Humans could not pay their own debt. The debt of sin was so great against a holy God, the only possible payment for that sin is the blood of God. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We're not celebrating a cute baby in a manger. We're celebrating God coming to earth, becoming a man, and dwelling among us. Living a perfect life, proving through the miracles that he, in fact, is God. Then dying on the cross for our sin and raising himself up from the grave. Jesus, the God-man, lived a perfect life, and Jesus substituted his perfect life for our sinful lives. Jesus was righteous, and he substituted his righteousness for your unrighteousness, for my unrighteousness. Our text says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In Christ's suffering and death, he gave us his righteousness. If you want a $3 church word, it's imputed. Jesus imputed his righteousness to us. In the eyes of God, when you believe, this is crazy. When you believe, you are righteous as God is righteous. Because you've been given the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You've been given the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Your righteousness or your being good enough to be with God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. If your righteousness is about how good you can be 
I want you to understand what you've done. If your righteousness is about how good you can be, about your religious acts, about your religious ceremony, about um, whether or not you were baptized, about how many times you've taken the Lord's Supper, about what church you were connected to, if your righteousness is somehow attached to those things, how much money you give, what you've done is you've strapped a rocket on your back that is screaming to hell. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is given as a free gift or it's not given at all. Jesus has given us his righteousness so that he would present us to his father. If it's about what you can do, it's weak. When God sees me, he does not see me in my failures. When God sees me, he does not see me in my good works. And my good works, the Bible tells me, are dirty rags to him. God doesn't see me in my good works. God doesn't see me in my worthless, uh, in my bad works. When God sees me, he sees me covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he sees me in the actual same righteousness as Jesus Christ himself has. Because it's given, he's clothed us in righteousness. But it's even better than that. It's even better than that because it's not like, hey, all right, I've saved you. I've done all the stuff. Everything that's required for salvation, I did it. You believed you're saved. Here's all my righteousness. Now you go be perfect. That's not it. He died once for sin. Hebrews tells us if that was the case, that we would need to sacrifice over and over and over. He's been sacrificed once for all sins. Jesus paid my penalty and your penalty for every sin you would commit in your past. But not just that, every sin that you've committed post-salvation and every sin you will ever commit. It has been fully paid for by the divine blood of Jesus Christ. We're not perfect but because of the blood of Jesus, our debt has been perfectly paid. Look at verse 18 again. It tells us that Jesus suffered, that he might bring us to God. In ancient times, you just did not go before a king unless you were invited in. I mean, try it today. Try walking up to the king of Saudi Arabia. Try to walk into his courts. What's going to happen? You're going to get taken out. If you make it in there, you're going to get killed. Same thing with uh, the president, like our president, which is a, a man of the people. Come up to him without an invitation and what's going to happen to you. You're about to get tackled by, rightfully by some secret service. To go before kings, to go before dignitaries, you don't get to be in their presence without an invitation. Jesus suffered and died and rose again, all that he might bring us to God. All because we could not be in the presence of the king because we've been separated by sin. Look again, verse 18, and you're going to see that we were, we were brought in. Being brought in has the connotation of being eligible. He makes you eligible to come before the king. Jesus presents us to the king and we're not just saved from hell and we're not just saved from the wrath of God that we deserve. And if that's how you share the gospel where you're like, hey, believe in Jesus, don't go to hell. You're giving them so much less than what Jesus is offering. We're not just saved from those things. We are saved 
to heaven. We are saved to be with God forever. We are saved for Jesus to present us to the Father that we would reign, not as servants, but as sons and daughters of the King forever and ever. Amen. That's what we've been given in Jesus Christ. Jesus presents us to the Father not in our righteousness, but in his. And because we know how the story ends, we can endure all suffering because we know that Jesus is in it with us. We know that he will present us to the Father. Let's look again at verses 18 and 19, and we're going to see that Jesus was empowered, is empowered by the Spirit. Christ, and I'm picking up later on in the sentence, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he once proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The end of verse 18 and all of verse 19 is where the controversy lies. This is one of the most hotly debated passages in all the New Testament, where unfortunately, the Greek is a very precise language, but Peter in this area was not so precise. So there's debate about what's going on here. And I'll tell you just up front, my view, which we'll get to in a minute, I'm going to build the case to, is the minority view. So if you have a different view, that's cool, because we're not a cult. We get to disagree on stuff. We get to agree on the majors and disagree on the minors. So there you go. You can have your opinion. Uh, so uh, I believe this word spirit, it, it comes up twice here, one in the singular and one in the plural. I believe that the spirit that's talked about here in the singular is the Holy Spirit. I, I think it's the capital Holy Spirit because that's how a pa other passages like this in the New Testament are translated. For instance, Romans 8 1, which the whole chapter is about the Holy Spirit. So it says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. And our verse 18 reads similar to that, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I believe that this is the Holy Spirit. Jesus was put to death and Jesus was risen from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, after three days, raised him from the grave. And verse 19 goes on to say, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits, that's plural, not the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is by which he proclaimed in prison. All right, so this is where it gets weird, and it is what it is. It gets weird. So the majority view on this reads that next verse that we did not read about Noah and, and the days of Noah, and they believe that Jesus when he died, goes down into Sheol. So you, like, the, a Hebrew worldview has earth. There's some stuff going on in heaven. We're not talking about that. That gets confusing. I'm just talking about this. You got earth, you got Sheol, which is death, and then you got hell. So the ones who are not in hell, but not in heaven, it's confusing. Um, that's where Catholics get the purgatory stuff. But, uh, I, unbiblical, just by the way. Um, they believe that Jesus goes into Sheol and there he preaches to the, those imprisoned who were imprisoned in the days of Noah, who, who did not believe during the time of Noah. 
and that's who they believe that this is talking to. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think um, it's not connecting us to these people in the time of Noah. I believe that Noah is an illustration about how God waited patiently on the people who rejected his message. I don't think Peter here is giving us a linear set of events. I believe that this passage is saying that by the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit that allowed him to preach to those who were in prison during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And Peter is, is using the story of Noah to illustrate the deliverance of, of Jesus. So uh, I think this is explaining how Jesus preached before his ascension in Jesus' first sermon, y'all remember this in the Gospels, he goes into the synagogue and he preaches and it says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Then he opens to the book of Isaiah and he's preaching from Isaiah 61, which talks about how the Messiah will come and the Spirit of the Lord will fall on him and he will preach to the release of the captives. Talking about those sinners who he was currently reading that text to. Um, also, we see the Spirit fall on Jesus at Jesus' baptism. He descended on him like a dove. And, um, you know, Jesus, he's preaching to all these people. And when we see John the Baptist, he's in prison. John sent his disciples to go see if Jesus was the one that he was hoping for. And how did Jesus respond? Spoiler alert, a quotation from Isaiah Go tell John that I preach that the blind receive their sight, the deaf are receiving and hearing, and the poor ha uh, are having the gospel preached to them. Jesus wanted to remind John of Isaiah 61 to what the task of the Messiah was to be, that he was to, to, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to preach the release of the captives, those who are imprisoned by sin. So the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that Jesus preached in power. Um, that, that same spirit that lived in Jesus, he's the same spirit that lives in us. And we get to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit as we go and tell. And I know you're like, man, that was so interesting. No, but I'm building the case for the next thing we're about to say. Like, I, I, know, I know this is one of those things, like, why did we spend 10 minutes talking about that? Well, I think it will bring understanding to verse 20. So let's, let's look at verse 20 and see how Noah fits, and Jesus will deliver his people, people is the, the section title for this in my notes. Um, Peter is using the story of Noah as an illustration. It's a play on, it's a play on water because we're talking about baptism and how Christ delivers us from destruction. And, you know, we can trace the people being in bondage to sin all the way back to Noah, also all the way back to the garden. And in the days of Noah, these, these sinful men, their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened. And Noah, in the, in the preaching the destruction that was coming, he's people are ma making fun of them. It took them a long time. The number escapes me right now, but it was over a hundred years that Noah built the ark. He's telling them what he's doing. And only eight persons were saved from the flood. 
Noah was mocked and rejected, but we got to read, I know we're only getting little pieces at a time, but we got to read this in context of everything. Verse 17, we picked up in verse 18, but verse 17 says what? For it is better to suffer for doing good that it should be uh, God's will than for doing evil. Noah suffered for doing good. And he was telling them that there was a day of destruction coming, but he was delivered ultimately in the ark. We, like Noah, live in an evil generation. When Christians believe and preach that salvation comes by faith alone and not by works, we look, the world makes us look like we're the crazy ones. Like we're the ones building an ark when the world had never seen rain. In the days of Noah, they had never seen rain, and Noah's like, hey, a flood's coming. It's about to rain, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. They had never seen rain in the days of Noah. The second coming of Christ, we look crazy because the world has never seen the destruction and devastation and vengeance that the Son of Man is coming back in. It looks crazy. Rain is coming. The judgment of God will once again be poured out on man. And the wrath of God this time will be devastating. The wrath of God this time will be final. And you need to understand, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ right now, you are in an emergency. Because you are destined for a devil's hell, along with everyone else that rejects the Son. Call on his name today, and the Bible says you will be saved. Step into the ark of promise. The protection of Christ, the love of Christ will be your ark of protection while all those who rejected Jesus will be destroyed around you. As the ark preserved Noah and his family from destruction, putting your faith and trust in Christ will preserve you from the destruction that's coming. God delivered Noah through the water. The same thing that God used to, to punish the world was the thing that God used to preserve Noah and his family. The same person that God will use to punish the world, he's the one that God has given to preserve your soul. Jesus took your curse in the gospel. Jesus fully reverses the curse. Think about him hanging on the tree. What, what brought sin into the world? Taking from the tree, Jesus reverses the curse on a tree. Part of the curse is, is uh, the, the, the curse of thorns. Jesus takes the thorns on his head. He reverses the curse in a crown. Death was supposed to be bitter, but in Christ, through the cross, death is no longer bitter. Death for a believer is sweet because it is stepping into eternity with the Father. Sin has been reversed. God has reversed the curse in Christ. Like Noah was preserved in Christ, we are preserved from the wrath of God. Not only will we be preserved, but we will be presented to the Father. So let's look at verses 21 through 22. Jesus will subject all things to his judgment. 
First, we're going to look at baptism. Baptism declares that we're Jesus' subjects. Verse 21, let's read this together. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. If you're an underliner, underline the this, or you're going to get way off. Now saves you. Not, underline not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, now baptism saves us, right? No. If you don't read carefully, that's the conclusion you will draw. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What is the this here? What is this corresponding to? This is pointing back to everything that we've discussed in this paragraph. That Jesus suffered once for all sins, and he's given us access to God, and he's substituted his righteousness for our unrighteousness. And he will deliver us from the wrath of God. That's the this, not the baptism. Baptism corresponds to that. Baptism is the illustration of all that. Baptism's the illustration of the gospel, but baptism's not what saves us. The this saves us. And what is the this? The gospel. And if you didn't catch it, he even goes further to explain. Look at your verse. Baptism now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The not. Baptism is not like the removal of dirt from the body. Or, and I grew up in a Baptist church and I've heard stuff like this. They talk about going and being baptized and, and having your soul washed clean. Water can't do that. The blood of Christ can Baptism does not wash away your sins like dirt from the body. That's what the blood of Christ has done for us. Baptism does not make us clean before God. Baptism for us is an appeal to God for the faith we have in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When we are saved, we are, when, when we're saved, our, our, God changes our hearts. We're made a new creation. Dipping in the water doesn't do that. When we ask God to forgive us from our sins, that's when he makes us a new creation. When we're baptism, when, when we're baptism, when we're baptized, that baptism is the outward expression of that inward reality. Now, I think baptism, uh, baptisms, uh, tongue-tied, I think Baptists miss it on this. We act like baptism is just a, just a, just a symbol I think there's something spiritual to it. I do. I think there's something spiritual that goes on in baptism. Does he explain it? No. But he commands it. Like there's something spiritual that happens in the Lord's Supper. It's, it's wor worship. It's obedience. And if you're here today and you were baptized and you weren't a believer when you were baptized... I want to challenge you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and, and, and 
out of obedience be baptized. If you've been a believer for a long time and you were baptized as a non-believer, maybe you were baptized in, in a Catholic church or a Methodist church or some, something that, that, that says that this baptism somehow saves you, I understand that that is some huge connecting point in, in your life to your family. Maybe your mom and dad aren't around anymore and you remember that moment. Maybe, maybe uh, you were baptized in a, a church that said that the baptism was saving you and, and your grandpa did it or something like that. And, and you, are, you are connected to that baptism. If you are not a believer... I'm telling you now, you are not walking in obedience with Christ. Now, if you are now a believer, but you're, you're saying, well, I was baptized back then, so we're all good. You're, you're currently walking in sin. So I would encourage you, if your salvation came after your baptism, that you would understand that you're not baptized. And I would like to encourage you to... To, to be brave enough, because I know for a lot of you, if, if it's something like this, it's been a long time, I would like to encourage you to take that step out, take that step of obedience, and, 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 and be baptized. Submit. I like how the Holman translates in our passage the word for appeal. I'm using the ESV. ESV. The word is appeal in the ESV, but Holman talks about it as a pledge. And so when we think about a good conscience, the Greek mindset would have been, it would have pointed to the innermost being of a person. So baptism doesn't save us, but it's a public pledge. It's pledging yourself that your innermost conviction is that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead. And baptism is telling the world that you are now a subject of Jesus. Hey, and you know, here's, let me encourage you with this. If you've not been baptized and you're thinking about it, baptism is the only nonverbal gospel that you'll ever get to preach. The act, the, the act of baptism preaches the gospel. You were dead to that old man. You were living in that sin. You, as Christ was buried in the tomb and came out, so we go into the water and we come out in the newness of life with the Holy Spirit living in us. But let's look at verse 22. All things will be subjected to Christ. Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The one you pledge yourself to in baptism, he has ascended into heaven in the, in the clouds in Acts 1. You'll remember that. And he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Why is that significant? The right hand of God is, represents the seat of power. Jesus sits in the seat of power in heaven. He's enthroned above all things, and the angels are his subjects. All authorities are his subjects. Kings and rulers and presidents will be his subjects. And God has subjected everything to him. Jesus, when he comes back, Jesus will subjugate everything to himself. He will force 
his rule and reign on everyone who does not freely believe in him and become his subject. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on the last day, Jesus will call the, the living and the dead before him and he will judge between believer and unbeliever, between righteous and unrighteous. And the only way to get that tag of righteousness is by faith alone in his works. And everyone else who does not have faith not good works, but faith will be cast into an eternal hell. Those who believe will spend an eternity with the king living as sons and daughters of God. And it's beautiful. The picture is this. The whole curse is reversed. This, this heaven and this earth, it says he does away with it, and he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus' throne is in the center of it. And God is now with us at all times. And he himself will wipe away every tear. He himself will comfort us. He will be our delight. And that's available for all who believe. So we can suffer all things because we know that we've been preserved by Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he will present us to the Father in glory. We can endure all things. If, you, if you're here today and you've not believed yourself, my call for you would to be to repent of the gospel, uh, to repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. If you don't know what that means, that's okay. Those are churchy words. I get it. I'm going to be right here, and I'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but your, your baptism does not match your belief. I would encourage you to step out in, in, in faithfulness and in obedience and be baptized biblically. If you will, bow your heads with me.